and you know it when you feel like the demand is just skyrocketed and sometimes it's to a scary level, right? It just feels like an onslaught and you can barely keep up. Happy New Year and welcome back to Product Market Fit, a podcast all about startups and growth. I'm your host, Moshe Poltrak, and I'm thrilled to kick off the year with this amazing episode. I was thinking about what to call this episode, and I couldn't come up with a single title because we covered so much in this conversation. So I'm just going to go ahead and name this Product Market Fit 101. My guest is Rajesh Nerlikar, co-founder at Prodify, a product coaching and advisory group. Rajesh has worked with more than 50 product teams and wrote the book, Build What Matters. Before Prodify, he held leadership roles at Morningstar, Hello Wallet, and Opower. In this episode, Rajesh covers why pricing is such a critical component of product market fit and signals you may be missing the mark on PMF, the Kano model for product development, how to gain insights from speaking with customers and prospects, what is vision-led product management, hiring product managers and product leaders, and more. Strap in your seatbelts, this is going to be a fun ride. But let's first get the housekeeping items out of the way. First, shout out to Mike Dohan for introducing me to Rajesh. I truly appreciate the connection. Thank you. As you know, we like to define any jargon or terms folks may not be familiar with. In this episode, Rajesh refers to PLG, which is product-led growth. That is when a product essentially sells itself, usually with some sort of freemium offering. Also, a reference is made to SMB, which is small to medium-sized businesses. My goal with this podcast is to share practical knowledge with startup founders and growth practitioners. If you enjoy this episode, I would greatly appreciate it if you'd leave a rating in Apple Podcasts or share it on social media so others like you can find us. And please do reach out to me with your feedback. The Product Market Fit podcast is brought to you by growth.co. That's growth without the O.co. Growth offers fractional CMOs paired with best-in-class digital marketing execution to support early-stage startup success. With a focus on seed and Series A companies, Growth has helped a number of SaaS, digital health, and e-commerce startups build their go-to-market function and scale up. To learn more and book a free consultation, go to growth.co, that's G-R-W-T-H dot C-O. Now on with our show. Rajesh, I'm super excited to talk product with you today. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me. Always excited to geek out on product. Absolutely. I'm not sure I did your resume justice, so can you take 60 seconds to establish your bona fides and tell us a little bit about Prodify. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, really high level about myself. I'm an engineer turned MBA turned product guy and been doing it for well, coming up on 17 or 18 years now, mostly at startups. I live in Austin, went to UT, did electrical engineering, got a minor business, went to go work at Accenture after school, thinking I, I would get a glimpse of business and technical. It worked out well. I started as a software engineer and architect in our government practice and then moved into a BA role as I was drawn to understanding our clients and why they were asking us to build the software. Went to business school up at Michigan Ross for a change of pace. Use that to transition into the world of startups. My first year, I worked for a student-run company in the travel space that we got acquired after graduation. I started another company with a classmate in the sustainability space. Then I got engaged and realized that a salary would be nice. And so I moved out to the Washington, D.C. area and got my first official job as a product manager at a growth stage company called Opower that was doing something very similar in the residential energy efficiency space found myself drawn to another sort of mission, which was the brewing financial wellness crisis in America. And so I went to another startup in DC, a fintech called Hello Wallet. We got acquired about a year after I joined, ran the product team after the acquisition as my manager went to go work for the company that bought us. And then I ended up moving to Chicago and joining Morningstar, where I took over about a $40 million product portfolio. I left Morningstar, you know, working remotely wasn't really a thing then. And I reached back out to Ben Foster, who was the head of product at Opower. 
he ended up joining one of his clients as chief product officer. And I took over this practice that we now call Productify five years ago. I've worked with now 40 product teams in the last five years. Collectively at Productify, we've worked with 100, maybe even 110 now. And there's sort of three big buckets we help with. So one is product vision and strategy. Where's the product going? How are you going to get there? Why is your product going to win in the market? And we had done enough in that space to create a framework to capture our best practices that we call vision-led product management. We wrote a book on that a couple of years ago called Build What Matters. Second big bucket is product team development. So we've done coaching since day one, product executives, individual product managers, entire product teams with some of our larger clients. We've also started doing some recruiting work to help find the right type of product person and recruit them and, and get them ramped up on the team. And then the last big bucket is what I call product operations, kind of an emerging function. I think of it as how do ideas turn into software inside of an organization and it gets into process, feedback loops, prioritization, tools, communication pathways. Um, and so, yeah, those are the things we do for, for with clients, uh, all in the spirit of helping them become more product driven to build scalable SaaS businesses. We're going to dive into several of those areas as we go along, but I want to start with the namesake of the podcast, Product Market Fit. How do you define Product Market Fit? You know, this is how I think about Product Market Fit today. It's the market. It's a group of people who are trying to you know, have money that they want to spend on some category of problems. There's a product, which is the solution that customers want to pay for. And like right there in the middle, right, uh, you hit the product market fit and, and you know it when you feel like the demand is just skyrocketed. And sometimes it's to a scary level, right? It just feels like an onslaught and you can barely keep up. So this is sort of the model that we typically see, you know, like I said, my co-founder, Ben and I sort of like came up with a new framework a few years ago. And there was a few reasons for that. One, you know, is there really a market anymore? This is not like a farmer's market where everyone has self-identified. They showed up on a Sunday morning to buy local produce. You can see the buyers in the market all in one place, right? It's sort of a virtual market. These people are spread out all over the place. And so one of the things we often talk about is trying to identify the personas and the clusters of who your target audience is. And so, you know, I think that's one aspect. And I think the other that we've often thought about is if you think about sort of the technology adoption curve is that you might have different markets because if every market is a different segment of the overall, you know, audience that you want to eventually sell to, you may have to find product market fit several times. And I think this was sort of an evolution in talking with clients and working with them over the past few years. And, you know, I think that this evolution comes from the different phases, right? So as you launch a product, you've got the innovators or the early adopters, and they're going to have a set of criteria that determine what a product needs to do for them. And they hopefully find a fit there. As you're finding product market fit, you might move into that early majority. And then, you know, you're kind of trying to scale with the late majority. And then you're trying to coast with the late majority and the laggards or some combination, right? And that you may consider that each of those are almost a market and you sort of have to repeat the cycle over and over again. And so the thing that we often think about is the goal is not really to just create the product market fit, right? What you're really trying to do is build a sustainable business. And so we add a third dimension to the Venn diagram almost, which is, hey, here's the market. It's the group of people who are looking for the same outcome. And they probably have some similar buying criteria, whether it's willingness to pay or feature sets that they're looking for, check boxes they're trying to check, right? And then you've got a product that this is the SaaS solution, so trying to help them achieve that outcome. And then you've got the, we call it pricing, but this also includes the economics internally of, of cost to serve and profitability and things like that. And then right there in the middle, you know, you have the sustainable business, which is what you're really trying to aim for. And while you have to have the product market fit to, to get to a sustainable business, our take was that a lot of people like kind of miss talking about the pricing side of things because you can build an awesome product that people love, but like, it doesn't mean you have a business that you can build on top of that. And that's not necessarily what everyone's going for. So absolutely. You know, product market fit is the buzzword, but I completely agree with you that it's more than just product and market. Pricing is a key component. 
I think also that messaging and channel are part of that. I know it'll complicate the diagram to include all of them, but where do you see messaging fitting into that product market fit equation when you think about all of these factors that come together in order to have a sustainable business? Yeah, I mean, I think messaging, it starts with convincing the prospect to even consider you in the consideration set, right? Like how do most people decide if they're going to try a new product? They have a need, they start, you know, whatever, they were banging their head against the wall because they were so frustrated perhaps with the existing solutions that were out there or frustrated with the way they were doing things today. And so I think there's a discovery channel and that's sort of where channels might come into play. Did I do a Google search and that's how I found out about your product or did the salesperson out outreach? And so I think the messaging really has to do with communicating the value prop in my mind, which is if you can't explain what your product does, then they're never going to try it to even see if they can actually extract the value from it. So I think it starts there. You know, obviously as a product guy, I think a lot about design and the onboarding experience in particular of how do you help get the customer to the aha moment quickly. I think messaging plays a role there in communicating and orienting the person to like, hey, th these are the things you can do inside of our product. Let's get started now. And, and here's, you know, a simple thing you can do today that we think is going to help you find really great value and hopefully open your eyes or get you excited about using our product on a more regular cadence, right? Yep. And the, the other thing that you mentioned that really resonated with me with regards to having to find product market fit over and over again. And that's a theme that has come up in multiple of these interviews in other episodes, you know, talking to founders, thinking about product market fit, not as a binary of, yes, we've achieved it or not. And it's more of a continuum of where are we in this particular market at this particular time? Because not only do you need to find product market fit, over and over again, every time you enter a new market, vertical, let's say you launch a new product, obviously those require new product market fit. But like you just talked about, even penetration within a single market, product market fit for the early adopters may look very different than the laggards and, and everybody in between. And even if you're not necessarily changing who you're selling to, but the market changes and product market fit may then change, right? So I, I really like that point about you know continuously evaluating it as you go along. Yeah, it's like a one-time thing and it's like, cool, like I'll, I'll, you know, let's go. It's a different kind of paradigm because everybody talks about like, oh, we've achieved product market fit as if it's a destination. What are some signals that a startup would see if they've achieved product market fit? Or what are some negative signals that might say, hey, you know, we're doing something wrong here? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's that sort of not helpful saying, which is like, you'll know it when you see it. And, and I think that's true having gone through a few startups. And, and I think of it a little bit as like, it feels like the first few dominoes have really fallen and now you're like, you're just watching like this explosion of, of demand for your product. These are some of the things that I think about is that if you went into our, our diagram, we kind of talked about what would it mean to find product market fit, but not necessarily have like the full picture, right? And I think this is, they like the product because they feel like it solves the problem. And, and I think it's better than anything else out there. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be better than anything else out there. However, they might not be convinced on the pricing, right? So most likely they think it's too expensive, but they agree that this is a good product. You know, and so I think that's one thing is that if you start feeling, you know, if you feel like pricing pressures, then I think that's a, a symptom or a signal that like you're onto something, but you know, you need to revisit the pricing uh, in this market pricing section, the, the quote here, right? This product is better than any others and it's so close to what I need. I would gladly pay if it just did X. So your product isn't quite there. 
but you found the audience who's looking to solve the problem and they're willing to pay for it, but they just don't believe maybe that your product is the one that's really going to do it. Right. So I think if you start hearing like, oh, but can you do X, Y, and Z? And, and this is normal, especially for B2B startups early on in the product lifecycle to get the feature requests. And I think the key question for the product team to be asking is what's really driving the request? Like what, what are they really trying to accomplish behind the request? And so then the, the other one would be hey, I found product and pricing fit, but it's not the market that we set out to, to go after, right? So I think this might be, you know, the casual window shoppers where they come and try the product, but they don't seem to be engaged with it. And they might be thinking like, ah, this is kind of interesting, but I have other problems to solve and I'm going to go spend my money somewhere else, right? And this one, I think the symptom here would be they actually paid for the product, but they probably canceled pretty soon after starting out their subscription, or maybe they did a trial and then they're like, eh, this isn't it. And so either you have the wrong audience or you got the wrong, you know, wrong pricing or something. So Yeah, a really good way of thinking about it. You reminded me of a, a funny quote from uh, Sarah Moskov, the founder and CEO of Winnie. She's a great follower on Twitter, but she uh, has a quote that PMF is like an orgasm. You're not sure if you've had it, you didn't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah, exactly. I'm going to try to get her on this podcast. I'm going to ask her about that. <laughs> that that's a, it's a great analogy. So a company came to me recently and they've had several years of steady growth, but they missed their 2022 sales goals and wanted help with marketing strategy for next year. After looking at their data, I can see that the pipeline looked really solid. In this past year, they had doubled their inbound leads tripled their outbound efforts, increased their sales team size. Despite all that, sales in 22 were flat or slightly down compared to last year. So immediately in my mind that said, hey, there's a product market fit issue here. Either they were targeting the wrong buyer or something about the product was missing the mark or, and hopefully in their case, because it's easiest to solve, the messaging or pricing was off base. What would you recommend to such a company as immediate next steps that they need to go after in order to write the chip? Yeah, I think that you probably did this thing, which is if the pipeline was that strong, then to me, the win-loss analysis is probably a useful place to start to do the retrospective on every deal and say, maybe we, we can guess or know who won and say what might have put that product over ours. And I think this is how you get into the competitive intel of what are the features, or I think of this actually as the evaluation criteria, right? And I don't know if you've heard of the Kano model framework, but huge fan. It basically says that most customers will bucket the value or the benefits of an individual product into either must-haves or performance factors where a performance factor, right? Their satisfaction scales linearly. The more you invest in that sort of area, and I think the classic example I'll use is with cars, the gas mileage is a performance factor, right? Everyone will always be a little bit more satisfied if the car gets 40 miles to the gallon than 30, right? And so I, I think that the win-loss analysis and, and maybe even using the Kano model as a framework to say, hey, what are the must-haves, right? We might've like not even gotten the second call because we were unable to check a box that like two or three of our competitors could check, right? Maybe it's a compliance checkbox or maybe it's a feature set checkbox, you don't know. But I think understanding your prospects well enough to be able to say like, what were the must-haves for this individual? What were some of the performance factors? Obviously pricing ends up being one of the performance factors, right? You might be a little bit more expensive and then the satisfaction might go down a little bit. I would probably start with that win-loss analysis, and, and I think it may require, you know, we call it the retrospective in the product world, but like, let's look back at the whole story behind this deal and talk about what we think actually happened that either helped us win this deal and who did we beat out and what factors helped us versus maybe if we lost, what do we think happened, especially when it comes to evaluating the product? Absolutely. 
I'm glad you brought up the Canon model. I think it's a, a really important way of looking at your product offering, that somewhat simplistic way of bucketing the feature set and, and the consideration set of you know how your customers looking at everything that you offer, pricing being one of them, and how does that go into their decision-making process? Going back to what we were talking about earlier with product market fit changing as you penetrate into a market, do you see those buckets changing as well? For example, with early adopters, I've seen, and maybe you know you can tell me if, if you agree or disagree, early adopters and visionaries are often likely to fall in love with some of your kind of delighter features, and they'll even overlook some of the must-haves, and that's their personality type. And then you get to kind of the crossing the chasm, if you will, of trying to sell to the majority, and you're realizing, hey, we're missing must-haves, and we missed these signals because we were selling to tech enthusiasts who couldn't care less about that. And they were just excited about the bells and whistles. Do you kind of agree with that generalization? Have you seen similar? And how would you recommend startups avoid that trap when they're moving through that progression and collecting feedback from their early adopters and using that feedback to inform their roadmap or their offering as they're trying to go mainstream into the product or into the market? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is to either acknowledge or accept that this is a reality of the world. Now, maybe there's some folks out there who don't believe that this is true, that once you find product market fit, you can sell to anyone afterwards, or you can largely sell the same product to lots more people afterwards. I, I personally don't. I think, I, you know, like we talked about, I think that there are early adopters who might have different buying criteria, evaluation criteria than the later adopters. And so I think just being able to acknowledge where do we feel like we are on this curve and are we entering a phase where we're now targeting a new prospect or a segment of the market, right? And just acknowledging that like, okay, if that's the case, maybe we do need to change the way that we position the product or the way we talk about it or the features that we highlight because we know that these individuals care about something different than our existing customers. And, you know, this is actually a theme that's come up for me because I often talk to my clients about customer research and how often are you talking to your users or your prospects or your buyers or all three ideally. And I think you have to be very conscious of whose feedback you're listening to in that moment and whether it's connected to your goals, right? If you have growth goals, you may not get as much value by talking to the existing customer base because you need to look at who's in the pipeline and what are they thinking about? That's where the growth is going to come from, right? Now, if you're in a different phase of the product maturity and you're like, actually, expansion is the name of the game, then 100% go talk to your customers and find out what else can we be doing that would deliver value for you and what products are you using to, to achieve that value today and what are some of the factors that you would consider if we were going to launch a competitive product to that and things like that, right? So... I think just acknowledging that this is a reality, that the market changes and we need to acknowledge that where we are and whether we've evaluated and, and found the fit we need to move on to the next sort of like market or, or you know, group of people in the adoption curve. This can be a topic in and of itself. So I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but are there any resources or just kind of general recommendations that you would give for how to do that customer discovery within your existing customer base? How do you do with your pipeline? How do you do with the general market? Any recommendations or, or resources that we can point to? And obviously we could talk about this for a while, but I, I, there are other things I want to get back to. Well, I guess resources wise, you know, recently I read this book by Teresa Torres. It's called Continuous Discovery Habits. I love it because the premise is that you should be talking to customers regularly. It should be a habit and it should be ongoing. And she has some great tactics for how to make it lightweight, right? You can run a test overnight and come in in the morning and look at some data. And like, that's a powerful way to kind of automate some of these things. 
I think the big challenge I hear, especially with B2B clients is how do I do this with prospects, right? Because the sales team is unlikely to give up access to these individuals during the sales process. And so for that, I would probably say maybe what you need to do is recruit the lookalike prospects. So maybe you go find your own people who look like the target buyer, but who are not yet in the pipeline. And hey, maybe they turn into prospects because they finally, at the end of the interview, they're like, by the way, what, do you, what company do you work for? What do you guys do? And, and you're like, oh, well, let me tell you, right? So that seems to be the hardest place is how to do this discovery work with prospects when sales typically doesn't want you to. I guess the alternative that I've worked on with, with a few clients is feeding the sales team one or two questions that can be extremely insightful for the product team afterwards, right? So for me at Hello Wallet in sort of a B2B2C model, which has been my kind of like specialty during my career, the key question was, if you rolled this financial wellness employee benefit out to a pilot audience of employees, what metric would you use after one year to decide whether the entire employee population should get it, right? And that was extremely insightful to me because one, I, we actually heard lots of different answers. And so it became clear that the buyer had different value props and that you know maybe we could probably segment folks a little bit better. But it also kind of prompted the right discussion in my mind, which is it's very hard to build a product as a startup with a limited set of staff that can achieve multiple outcomes simultaneously in a way where we would actually win in the market, right? So I think it kind of forced a prioritization question, which is like, are we going after too big of an audience here? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm sure you're familiar with the um, question slash framework that Rahul from Superhuman developed around, you know, how disappointed would you be if the product was no longer available? Is that something that you've used and recommended? I have personally not, but I think it's a great one for product for especially for consumer facing products or if you, you have the PLG motion and you're trying to sell the SMBs, I think that it can be a great one, which is uh, did we deliver so much value that you would be sad if you lost access to the right? And so I, I think it's good. I haven't personally used it. I've read the article in the case study and talked about it with some clients. Customer discovery is such a critical piece of not just product, just business, but it's such a difficult tightrope to walk for all the reasons that we talked about and just generally, you know, the feedback that you get often needs to be filtered and interpreted, right? The, the famous Steve Jobs quote of no, no amount of customer feedback would have built an iPhone, right? Because customers don't know necessarily what they want. Yeah. Or whether Henry Ford said it or not, right? If I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, right? Exactly. A faster horse. Yeah. You and your partner, Ben Foster, co-authored the book, Build What Matters, Delivering Key Outcomes with vision-led product management. Can you tell us what is vision-led product management and why is it important? Yeah, the sort of story behind why we created the framework was, as you might imagine, having worked with, at that point, it was probably like 50 or 60 companies, you know, six years into the life of the firm, we started identifying patterns and we actually pattern matched those against some of the things that we struggled with when we were in product operating roles as well and realized that the lack of a product vision was sort of at the root of many what we call dysfunctions that end up sort of manifesting themselves inside of the SaaS or tech companies, right? And so we set out to create the framework because crafting a vision is not a muscle that most people flex on a regular cadence, right? It's not very often that you have to think forward many years and, and predict what the world might look like and then create a document or artifact that can explain where the product is headed and why it should be exciting to everyone. And so we, we created the framework to help companies articulate their product vision. And then we also go kind of like two steps further from that. We say, 
then once you have the vision and have alignment, you work backwards to create kind of a multi-year strategic plan. These are all the things we don't have today in our product that we would need to have in order to make sure the vision came to life. Because one of the other problems we had seen was these vision documents kind of sat on the shelf collecting dust. They were used for fundraising. Meanwhile, the product team was just like firefighting and building like random features that had nothing to do with the vision. And so we wanted to make sure that there was a plan to realize the vision. And then we also realized that not every product team can just spend 100% of their capacity working towards some long-term vision. So we created a roadmap balancing framework that acknowledged that there's sort of three categories of things that product teams are usually juggling simultaneously. One was what we called innovation, progress toward the vision. Two was iteration, which is tweaks to the existing product, usability issues, customer feedback, optimizations, or conversion funnel-like optimizations. And then three was operations, which effectively is the tax of modern SaaS platforms, right? Performance, security, uptime, privacy, like internal tools, bugs, tech debt. And you can't ignore some of those things. And so we created the roadmap balancing framework. That's the core of the book. Then in the first, you know, first section, we kind of explained what the framework was at a theoretical level. And then in the second part, we explained how to actually apply it in a debt and very tactical level. You know, and we created a bunch of worksheets and templates so that people could try some of the concepts right after they read the chapter. Got it. And I'll drop a link to the book in the show notes. Without giving away too much of, of the book, obviously, are there some initial steps that a startup can get started with to start walking down this, this path towards the framework? Yeah. And they're actually the same steps that if someone came to me and said, I think we're not quite nailing our product market fit. Can you help us figure out what to do next that I would probably say to do here? So one is identifying the personas, like who is your target audience? And then two, we, we use a concept called key outcome, which is like, basically, what are they trying to achieve in their life? Why does it matter to them? And like, that should be your value prop effectively of your product when you pitch it to them, right? And then the third thing that I think would probably be a good starting point would be to go through the Kano model exercise and look at who are we up against? You know, for anyone who works in B2B, you know that one of the biggest competitors is probably spreadsheets and a bunch of like stitched together ad hoc processes internally inside of a company. And so I don't just mean who are the competitors from a SaaS product perspective. I mean, how does this job or this workflow like play out today? How efficient is it at delivering the outcome? What are some of the pain points? Like all those things, right? And I think all that can be helpful in helping you set the vision of where your product should go and how you're going to differentiate in the market, which is why we often do the Kano model exercise early before we set the vision to make sure that the team is aligned on what is the core differentiator that we're trying to go after and, and why is our company uniquely positioned to do that? But also like really clarifying who's the buyer, who's the user, you know, or maybe they're one and the same for D2C products, but those are some of the first three things that we would be, be getting started with. Really helpful. Thank you. The point you made about the spreadsheets and the, the status quo in many cases, especially in B2B, but I think in many cases in general, the competitor is the status quo is whatever, just leave it alone and not necessarily a, a direct competitor, another provider. Yeah. And I would say that that's typically where the category creation like kind of playbook makes sense is that, hey, that nobody's doing anything in this space. However, obviously, you know, don't have to get into sort of the, the, what makes category creation hard. I think the biggest thing is like, where's the budget coming from? You got to steal a budget from somewhere else then, which means you have to convince the prospect that this is a problem worth paying money for. It presents some challenges. In some cases, the reason that inaction existed is that they were kind of okay. Maybe it wasn't a problem that but was worth worth solving. Right. One of the services that Prodify offers is hiring support. And I'm sure that you've hired plenty of product managers in your day. What's the top one or two most important attributes that you look for when hiring a product manager? 
And how might that change when hiring a product leader? The first thing we do is, you know, like we talked about, having an understanding of where you are in the product lifecycle is important for a lot of reasons, but including hiring, because the type of person you need may change depending on where you are in the life cycle as well, right? So I think that's one of the first things that I'm normally trying to do with the client is understand what does success look like for this individual? And one of the first questions I ask is, how would you know if you made the right hire six months after they started or a year after they started? Like, what would be true in the world? And that provides me with a lot of insight of what they're looking for. And from there, I can go tailor the job description and think about where to recruit these types of people and like all that stuff, right? I think for startup product managers, like scrappiness or some entrepreneurial spirit is a must have. I think the understanding or experience, having seen how chaotic startups are and how many hats you have to wear is another major factor, which is like, you are not just going to be sitting there writing user stories or doing customer discovery interviews, right? You're also going to be implementing like you know, rollouts of new clients. You're going to be the support team probably. And you, know, you just have to wear a lot of hats. So you need some flexibility and you need people who are interested and can actually be good or reasonably good at different things that are not just product management, even though that might be their title, right? So those are some of the key things I'm looking for from a product manager perspective, especially because a lot of what we help with is often the first product management hire inside of an organization. And it's usually someone at kind of a PM or senior PM level that's focused more on execution. Now you asked, what am I looking for in leaders? Usually the leader job rec is opened up, you know, maybe series A, and there's probably uh, some product market fit already, right? The founder was the original product person and they worked with some group of people to get something into the market, generate a little bit of revenue, build some momentum, raise some funds. I think what often happens here that I'm quite curious on is effectively the vision and strategy experience for product leaders, right? Usually what happens there is you found some early signs of product market fit, and there are probably two or three or maybe four viable paths forward that all look pretty attractive and reasonable. And I think at that point, you really need to make the hard decision of which direction are we going to follow, which path are we going to follow. And I think this is where a product leader can be really helpful as a thought partner to the founder or founders who obviously are going to have an opinion of like the future direction of the product. But uh, I think that this person can come in and really start helping set that vision and strategy. Often at that point, there's probably some hiring that needs to be done, whether it's designers or more product managers or product analysts or whatever. So it'd probably be pressure testing for hiring experience. Of course, with that comes managing experience and coaching and mentoring, and especially at startups, there's not a lot of time for those things. And so I'm curious to hear from people who have been there and done that and how they thought about developing their team while also helping grow the product in a business. And then the last thing is sort of that product operations bucket I mentioned. I think at some point you have to level up the processes that you have and they, they may break after some period of time. And so you might have to think about like, do we need new tools or new communication pathways? Should we establish like a weekly product newsletter so that other people know what all of us are working on now that our team is like doubled or tripled in size, right? Those are some of the key things I'm looking for in a product leader uh, at that point. You mentioned the first product hire in early stage startups. One of the founders is invariably the product visionary and de facto product leader. When do you recommend that a startup makes that first product hire? And how do you recommend founders navigate that transition process? Yeah, I've got a whole blog post. If it's helpful, I'll send it to you. You can put it in the show notes. But I, I think there's usually a few symptoms or signals that are existing. The biggest ones that I'll call out are one, the founder is out of time to wear the product management hat. And there are engineers who are blocked as a result, right? And everyone knows engineers are expensive. You don't want them twiddling their thumbs, right? So often this is during fundraising. 
it might be during a hiring sprint where the founder is now adding two, two more executives or something to the exec team and they're just busy and rightfully so, right? So I think that's a, a, a normal symptom. I think that when the funding comes in, and like I said, I think it, it varies now, seed series A maybe, to add more engineers, usually you want to add the product person or hire the product manager first so that they can start prepping the body of work and prioritizing the work and shaping it and scoping it so that when engineers sign, you know, show up, they're also not twiddling their thumbs on day one because nobody's thought about what they're going to work on, right? So I think that's another um, kind of like clear symptom. I, th there's another probably one or two. I think uh, I call it the wrinkled eyebrow where you like see a release that came out and you're like, wait, what? That's what we shipped in the last three months or something? Uh, or, you know, that's what engineering designed and built in the last like sprint. And so I think sometimes that's a signal like, okay, maybe we need someone thinking about the prioritization or scoping or doing all those things, right? Sometimes UX suffers and customer success starts feeling the frustrations and things like that, right? Absolutely. What are your thoughts on the growth function? When should that be a product function for the most part versus a marketing function? And how can those parts of the organization, marketing, product, and growth work together in the most efficient and effective way? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So I guess where I'm seeing it most commonly and makes total sense is more consumer facing or selling to SMBs, right? Where you're trying to implement a product-led growth strategy, which is the product sells itself. You've got people who maybe are trying out the product and then you're trying to up, you know, upgrade them into paid subscriptions and things like that. So typically the marketing team is trying to build awareness and get traffic to landing pages. And usually product and marketing are experimenting on the landing pages, like you said, with messaging in particular, like what value prop was resonating with what segment of users or and things like that. And then typically growth would end with the registration of the product and then it moves into sort of the engagement or the core product teams who's thinking about keeping those people around for a long time or monetizing their um, activities, right? So I think that the registration flow sometimes ends up being the, usually owned by product. So it's like, hey, marketing will help get the people to the paid landing pages and then product and marketing are kind of on deck to convince them to start the registration flow. And then product is probably on deck to make sure that they actually finish the, the marketing flow because usually that's when you start getting into like the core software of like authentication and all that stuff, right? And on, maybe onboarding too. So that's how I've seen it. And I think that it requires a partnership. I, I think the most critical thing is like, you know, like we talked about, Who's the target audience? The last thing you want is marketing to go after some segment of people that the product messaging wasn't really designed for. And you have a bunch of like, you know, you kind of have a high bounce rate on the landing page because everyone's like, oh, that's not what I, that's not what the ad said that this product was going to help me with. And that's a key thing, which is like, who are we going after? And I think that actually, you know, I would argue, especially with consumer facing businesses that should follow through all the way into engagement and monetization, right? You need to make sure that these are valuable users, not just anyone who signed up and like kind of uses the product. We need to make sure that they're actually valuable to us. So I think that that alignment on who we're going after needs to go all the way through the entire funnel. I think the other thing that to me was interesting here in thinking about growth teams was how do they share insights? Because growth teams run lots of experiments, right? Marketing is running probably tens, hundred, whatever, during the course of a year. And product might be running tens as well on landing pages. And they're learning a bunch of things. And how do you make sure that those insights are shared, whether it's, hey, there's a weekly email or Slack message or newsletter or something that goes out or monthly or once a month we talk about user insights and there's a meeting where someone volunteers to share for 10 or 15 minutes like key lessons that they've learned about users. And I think that this is critical to you know, we call it creating the user-centric culture and that the insights aren't locked in 
because of the org structure, right? Where marketing's like, ah, well, this is what we learned from our ads. And I, I told my marketing counterparts, but I didn't even think about whether design or product or engineering should hear about some of these things as well. And so, you know, I think about it of creating an openness where, where those insights are shared freely all the way up and down the funnel, right? Maybe the monetization team learned something that would actually change the value prop or the way that we message the value prop all the way up at the top of the funnel. How do you make sure that that, that insight is actually shared uh, across the team when you have large teams? Yeah, I've seen that unfortunately too often that experiments are done, but then learnings don't necessarily get shared. And, and it's just, you know, what's the point of, of testing then if, if it's just the small little uh, feedback loop? Yeah, maybe you eke out some incremental benefits on one of the KPIs or something or the conversion rates, which is which is good. But, you know, otherwise it's like the experiment or the inside black hole almost, right? It's like all these experiments are running and they just kind of like fizzle out into nothing. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, like all things communication related and collaboration related, the problems compound as you grow and if you're growing quickly and you know, new teams, new hires, et cetera. Yeah, I think that that's actually a good transition into product ops, which is the, the third bucket that you mentioned. Again, it's probably a topic in and of itself that we can talk on for a while, but just at a high level, what are some key components to that ops tool belt, if you will, especially for early stage startups, you know, they're not going to have a ton of process. What should they start with? And where does process make sense for an early stage startup? Where Where's it too early? Because oftentimes, you know, companies will try to implement something that they saw work at Google or Amazon. And it's like, that works there, but we're not ready for that. It's not going to be helpful for us. It's going to be detrimental. So any recommendations that you have around product ops, particularly for early stage founders? Yeah. I mean, I think that in the same way that something like marketing ops or sales ops kind of doesn't become relevant until you've reached a certain team size or, or like where the efficiency of that team ends up being something worth thinking about or hiring for. Product ops is a new function that's growing now for product, you know, design, the analytics teams that fall under the product executive. And so I think that in general, what I find is that the early stage companies aren't really thinking about this. And I think that's okay and natural. Uh, the reason that I think it's really interesting, and I just did a blog post on product operations and how it affects culture, and I'll set it, but I think that the core of the, you know, the graphic I put at the top of that blog post was that culture equals people times mindset times behavior. And I think where product operations really can move the needle is that mindset and the behavior. And so there are a handful of like key areas that I usually think that product ops can have an outsized influence on the culture. And so one example would be outcome orientation, right? Do we have habits of setting goals for our feature releases and regularly pausing our development cycles to measure whether anything that we're shipping is moving the needle on our KRs or the, the KPIs or whatever the goals were that we set out when we started building a new feature, right? A lot of product teams like have gone pretty far away from the lean, you know, lean startup manifesto of build, measure, learn. And what I generally see is build, 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 right? And so I think that's an example of like a mindset and a behavior that then informs the culture, which is like, yes, everyone in our company thinks about the metrics on a regular cadence because we all get together and talk about them on a regular basis. And it's built into our process. It's built into our templates, right? And so I think process and tools and stuff feel like they're like minutiae or boring, but I think that this is where culture comes to life. These habits and behaviors that you sort of emphasize. Uh, another one is user centricity, like we just talked about, right? How do we make sure that meetings start off with what is the user's problem? What are some verbatims from recent interviews we've done that sort of help us understand what, what problem we're trying to solve and why it matters to users, right? So there's like that aspect. I think there's a collaborative mindset that's important, which is that 
you don't have a mini waterfall where product does some work to shape a feature and then hands it to design and they make it look pretty. And then they, you present it to engineering and ask them how long it would take to build. But instead like, you know, product design and engineering are sitting in on good discovery interviews at the same time. And there was solution brainstorming at the same time. And like, you know, that, that is collaborative. So that's to me, the theory of why, why product operations is helpful. And, you know, I think there's, you know, a handful of behaviors and mindsets that, that product ops can really move the needle on. You gave the analogy when we spoke last about the uh, Swiss army knife, uh, which I, I thought was really salient. If you can share that and just kind of, what do you mean by that example and the lesson learned from that? We use the Swiss army knife example to explain a concept around product design principles, right? One of the design principles that makes the Swiss army knife so powerful and, and a classic product has been that it fits in your pocket, right? But it has enough tools on it that it makes it extremely useful to, to give up the pocket space when you go camping or hiking or whatever for that small knife, right? And I just remember laughing when I saw the graphic. It was a Swiss army knife that was like extremely fat. And the story that we tell is like, imagine if the product manager had just listened to every feature request that the owners of the Swiss army knife had asked for of like, oh, I wanted to have matches and I wanted a hot dog skewer so that I can hold the hot dogs over the fire. And you just end up with like this like thing that's now so fat that it doesn't even fit in your pocket anymore, right? And like, this is an example of what we would call feature bloat in the product world. And I think that obviously the reason we show the graphic is it's so clear with the physical product, but it's so hard to see with the software product, right? Your feature bloat is buried under like three levels of nav bar, or like there's a menu that has 18 different like sections in it. And it just like gets to be overly complicated, right? And so we use that to talk about how do you think about the simplicity of your product and make sure that you don't end up in a place where you would have feature bloat. And that very well might preclude you from finding product market fit, right? Maybe, maybe the feedback is like, this product is overkill for what I need, or it's too complex, or I don't have time to like train my employees on how to use this thing. Like we're not going to buy it. We're going to buy this other one that had a nice user experience. That was simple. Absolutely. It's a funny visual, but we see it so often with software products. So a really good example. We've reached the exciting lightning round. If you'll entertain us, each of these questions, answer the first thing that comes to your mind in under 60 seconds. Let's do it. All right. What's one productivity habit that you swear by? Oh, I have to put calendar blocks for solo thinking time. When, when we wrote the book, I had to block lots of time to make sure I get into the zone of writing. And I still continue to do it. Sometimes I'll put blocks for client discovery interviews and just say, hey, Monday afternoons, I'm going to try to do two or three interviews and just to stay in touch with our, our clients and things like that. So I'm a big fan of calendar blocks, but I also I live and die by my calendar. So Calendar blocks are, are critical, much easier to implement in a work from home environment, I, I find. What book or podcast do you find yourself recommending most often? Oh, for product managers, uh, Lenny's newsletter, I find is, is great. Lenny was an early employee, I think, at Airbnb and kind of worked on growth product. You know, you could tell how much energy he puts into his posts and doing research and talking to a lot of people and then summarizing it in a digestible way. So he's got a newsletter and a podcast. 100% agree. I love Lenny's podcast and great, great insights in his newsletter. Uh, what's one piece of terrible advice that you've received? Oh, that's a good one. Maybe I'll use a, an offshoot of, of something that, that we think about as parents, my wife and I, that 
it's bad to make mistakes. And I think if there's anything I've learned in entrepreneurship and startups and products, it's like, that's how you learn and it's okay to make mistakes. And so I, I think that it's something that we're really trying to emphasize with the kids, which is like, it's okay. If you mess up, just acknowledge and think about if there's something you might do differently next time. And, and that's it. That's life, right? Learning consistently. Totally agree. What's one thing that you'd like to change about the startup world? I think the pressure that being a venture-backed startup puts on teams and founders and, and it, it is a lot. I get it. I understand the mathematics and the economics behind trying to produce like, you know, the 3x returns and things like that. But uh, I think that the level of burnout and things like the detriment of being at an early stage startup, I'm starting to see a lot more stories and, and signs about how harmful this pressure to consistently grow at perhaps unreasonable rates is, is putting on teams and people. So, Yeah, it's tough. What's a kindness that someone did for you earlier in your career that still sticks with you? Oh, I mean, every time I think about my career, I think about the manager at Accenture who gave me a chance to be a BA after being a software engineer and architect. And like, that was transformational to my career. I had no credentials per se, except a passion and an interest. And he gave me a chance, like, you know, that was game changing for me. And I think that what I've realized having now worked with lots of people and done sometimes career coaching is a natural topic that comes up with my clients as a product coach. And I, I think I'm starting to see the theme of that that individual who gave someone a chance that ended up being life-changing or career-altering for those individuals. And I think I think about that a lot, especially as a recruiter, right? Yeah. <laughs> How do you Open the, a completely in? new path for you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Amazing. What's one question that I didn't ask that you wished I'd ask? Good question. I don't know that it's one question. Maybe it's more of a theme. And I think you actually did ask one flavor of this with the growth question. I think a lot about the collaboration between product and product marketing. And I think that there's sometimes some very great areas, growth product being probably the grayest. But I think that even otherwise, there should be a strong partnership. And I think that maybe there's a whole other podcast on like, what are best practices for product and product marketing to collaborate? Another thing I, I was hearing actually during that growth panel that we did over the summer, I think with our clients, one of the individuals who came that we invited had mentioned how marketing now reports into product because of this exact reason is that they didn't want the org structure to be a reason that these two, two functions didn't talk to each other. And so I thought it was kind of an interesting org structure implication of that collaborative model that I think is critical for a product to succeed. Rajesh, I've learned so much and really enjoyed this conversation. I mean, we can go on for a while, but I want to respect your time. Any final parting words and also how can people get in touch with you? You know, I guess the last final words to sum up our theme of the early discussion, knowing that this is all about product market fit, is just remember that product market fit might need to be achieved many times over as your product matures and you find new target audiences or try to scale the business on top of the product. And to get a hold of me, uh, LinkedIn is a great place. I try to post a lot of content and blog posts, like I mentioned. I'll send some for, for you to put in the show notes. But otherwise, just Rajesh at Product.group is my email if anyone wants to email me directly. Amazing. I'm going to put all those links in the show notes. Definitely want to stay in touch and keep learning from you. And thank you so much for sharing your insights and, and your wisdom here. I hope to talk to you soon. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it as well. And yeah, look forward to doing it again sometime. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. I learned so much in that conversation and hope you did too. I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode. Hit me up via email at hello at pmfpod.com or find me on LinkedIn or Twitter to tell me what you thought of the show how we can make a better or specific guest that you think I should have on. Coming up, we've got interviews with the founders of Bardeen, Butter, and Inc., among others. So hit that follow or subscribe button so you get notified when we release new episodes. If you love this podcast and want to join me for the ride, 
I'm hiring for production, editing, and social media roles. And finally, don't forget to check out growth.co, that's growth without the O, dot co, if you're considering a fractional CMO for your startup. Until next time, wishing you rocket ship success in your startup journey.